A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hello, Chris. How's it going? Um, welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. As you know, we generally have a discussion about matters economic, political, financial between ourselves. We have had the occasional guest on, and today is one of those days. Um, we're delighted to be joined by Duncan Weldon, who is um, a journalist at The Economist. Um, he's a professional economist by training. Um, and for The Economist, he writes about the British economy, and he was previously economics correspondent for BBC's Newsnight. Uh, Duncan has just written a book called 200 Years of Muddling Through, which is the surprising story of Britain's economy from boom to bust and back again. And if you want to know more about Duncan's biography, um, I would recommend you buy the book and um, you'll find a lot more about it there. But um, it's it's an amazing book, actually, because uh, there's just over 300 pages of 200 years of UK economic and political history, really. So it's it's absolutely fascinating. There is so much in it that it's difficult to know where to start. So, Duncan, we are going to let you do most of the talking here. But I guess, you know, Chris is Welsh. Um, and has worked and lived in the UK as well as Ireland for most of his career. So I guess he should know most of the stuff that's in this book, or at least be vaguely aware. Um, as an Irish person who has been based in Ireland most of my p- professional career, um, the UK has always been a subject of fascination because for the Irish economy, long-standing economic, political, social um, cultural relationship going back um, hundreds of years. Um, but from an economic perspective, you know, Ireland has lived through over the years 
um, a serious exposure to the UK economy. We've been subject to the vagaries of the UK economic cycle. We've been subject to the vagaries of sterling. So in reading this book, I certainly learned an awful lot about what the um, economy has done, uh, particularly, as I say, over the last 200 years. So it's absolutely fascinating. Um, Cain, you, there, there's a quote from you in the book saying that Cain said that ideas ultimately shape history. Um, and you say they don't. What matters most is political power. And you say that a few prime ministers such as Peel, Gladstone, Attlee and Thatcher have shaped the economy rather than being shaped by it. But you say they are the exception rather than the rule. And you also um, talk a lot about path dependency. So I guess the first thing we'd like to ask you is, you know, tell us about the book. Tell us where you come from in terms of writing this. Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, when I was writing the book, um, so you sort of got in your mind, you know, who is the, who who is this book for? It's the question you should really ask before you spend months of your life researching and writing a book. And I, I thought this book was for a few different groups of people. I thought it was for historians and people interested in history who didn't necessarily know much in the way of economics or economic history. I thought it was for economists who I've often found don't always have a very strong knowledge of economic history. It's changing now, but certainly when I did my undergraduate economics, you know, I, I did the economic history option, but most of my peers didn't. It was perfectly possible to spend years of your life studying the economy without ever learning about economic history, which I think is a is a great shame. And just generally for sort of the interested general reader who wants to understand British history, British politics, where the British economy is today. Um, you know, I sort of think of it as a book for people who know that productivity is important or the balance of payments sometimes matters, but would quite like the author to occasionally remind them why productivity is important or why the balance of payments sometimes matter. And the sort of the central idea of the book really is about path dependency being really important. You know, path dependency, very common idea in economic history, reasonably common in economics, but I think often often ignored. So, you know, the, you know, the whole idea of path dependency is the idea, you know, the the joke of the tourist asking a man for directions and the man replying, well, if I was you, I wouldn't start from here. I mean, it's not a very funny joke, but it's also completely useless advice. You know, path dependency is the idea that the road you took to get somewhere is just as important as the final destination. It's not an argument that history is the only thing that matters. It's not saying that the future is already written, but it's saying the choices available to any generation of policymakers, business people, etc., has been shaped by the choices taken or not taken by the generations before them. Yeah, Duncan, I think that, that puts it very well. And that was actually one of the questions, one of the first questions I've got in my notes in front of me is this question of the teaching and study of economic history. Um, uh, your book is, is, is a book about economic history. <clears throat> and I was wondering just why you think it is that economic history has become, you mentioned that it's starting to change, which is great, but certainly for, for decades now, economic history has been a backwater of the discipline. It's not been the most sexy part. It's been very understudied. Um, Jim, what's the name of that uh, Trinity Oxford e Irish economic historian that we know, we both know? Kevin O'Rourke. 
Kevin O'Rourke, you mentioned him in the book as, as an example of a modern economic historian who's written some pretty definitive texts. And yet, I think even Kevin would say that uh, it, 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 it has, until very recently at least, become a backwater. And I'm struck that the study of history generally, of course, is, is, has, been, has changed. As, and um, I suspect our adventures in Afghanistan recently are as a result of not knowing our history. Uh, perhaps um, military history, certainly, if not political history. Why do you think economics neglected for so long the history, the history, economic history, and the history of economic thought as well? Because we don't we don't study the um, the classics in economics anymore. You mentioned in the book, and my jaw dropped at this actually, that you don't think anybody in the modern era has actually read the general theory. Um, I really don't think they have. Be my, um, I have. I yes. have read it. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Why do you um, think history is, has become such a backwater? Yeah, so I think I think so economic history, I think I think things are getting a lot better now, but I think for a long time it's sort of suffered by sort of falling between two stools as it were between history and economics and I think many history departments didn't quite know what to do with their economic historians as they seemed very different from them they they liked to use models they were very quantitative they used a lot more data didn't quite fit with the rest of a history department and lots of economics departments in universities didn't quite know what to do with their economic historians you know academic economists were increasingly using data increasingly using sophisticated um, models. Um, economic historians are the kind of people who still like to look at archives and, you know, um, I mean, I mean, almost a more social history approach. And I think because of that, you know, economic historians found themselves not necessarily comfortable in history departments of universities, not necessarily fitting into economics departments of universities. And it almost became sort of an orphan academic discipline. You know, I've always thought the way as I understand it, it is changing. But the way I was taught, you know, starting economics as an undergraduate was, you know, a very theoretical approach, starting with microeconomics and then macroeconomics. And that entire first year was all just about quite abstract sort of basic models. And then over time, you made the models more complicated. But it was all very theoretical with very little sort of empirical data. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I just sort of think it's, it's a very strange approach to teach people theory first before you expose them to, you know, the actual real world. I think if you've learned it in that way, your instinct is always try and make the real world fit your theory rather than the, your theory fit the real world, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I spent most of my early quasi-academic career torturing the data to make it fit the theory. And if you torture it long enough, it will tell you what you wanted to tell you, I mean. That's why torture works. <laughs> One of the early themes in the book, when you talk about um, really pre-industrial history, but also going into the modern era, I suspect, you likely touch on this, but it, it really piqued my interest in which you talked about how the early feudal systems of kings and barons and tribal chiefs resembled mafia-type structures and the way in which a lot of early governments and perhaps some modern governments also <laughs> resemble mafia-type structures. And it led me to wonder whether this mafia tendency, this mafia thing that pre is present in human affairs going back a long way, is in fact the norm and in some way and that modern government with its institutional checks and balances, with its rule of law, is the exception. And that in fact, that when we look at 
Trump-style mafia-type <laughs> governments as an aberration. It, it's really a return to the human condition or the human way of governing ourselves and that we, 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 we need to take this more seriously and perhaps slightly more uh, frivolously. I mean, most blokes absolutely adore The Sopranos and the mafia films and The Godfather and always imagine themselves. It, the reason why these, the, this genre is so popular is that this is somehow deeply ingrained in the human condition or the male condition, at least. It's interesting, Chris, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, so this is, you know, Douglas North, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work in economic history. He's, you know, big theory of, sort of institutional development. And you're sort of drawing in on that in the book. You know, what Douglas North points out is, you know, very early after the Neolithic Revolution, you know, we stop being hunter-gatherers, mankind becomes settled farmers. And very, very, very early on in that process, some rather bulkier, stronger humans realize that being a farmer is quite rubbish compared to threatening people who are farmers to hand over some of their crop. Um, Douglas North uses in this wonderfully sort of polite economic phrase the term violence specialists um, for these these larger people. Um, you know, a, a less polite word would be thug. Um, you know, that is the basic organizing factor of small human societies that you've got some strong people who protect the rest of the community in return for a share of their wealth and you know and eventually you see sort of this process of state formation as um you know villages join together uh, they become wider areas and the most successful violence specialists end up with titles like baron duke and king you know or douglas totally soprano douglas north frames it up as you know he's got a theory behind this he talks about what he calls closed access uh, limited access orders and then more open access orders a limited access order this sort of you know society run by the violence specialist is one in which you know the safe the elite is very very small it's hard to get into the elite and the elite sets the rules of the game in its own interests and you know it's very hard to try and run sort of you know a commercial enterprise in a medieval society because the king or your lord or at any point they want can say actually you're making a lot of money doing this give some of that money to me and as societies transition to a more open access order one where it's easier to get into the elite. Uh, you know, the elite probably brings on alongside um, merchant interests, commercial interests. It, it, it widens a bit. Um, is really when you start to see sort of the underpinnings in North's theory of modern European economic growth. But it's a very, very long process. You know, for most yes, for most of human history, we've been ruled by the violence specialists. So we've we've been ruled by kleptocrats rather than democrats. Yeah, and you know, it's, it really takes you back to the concept of economic rent, you know, which is you know sort of core to understanding economic history. You know, economic rent, you know, meaning just when someone is being paid more than they have to be paid for a service. You know, when they when they they themselves are picking up economic value without actually creating anything of value. You know, so the control and dishing out of economic rents is really tied up with sort of the development of of modern societies you know in, in in these sort of societies ruled by the violence specialists there's an awful lot of economic rent which is being generated which is going to the elite and the interesting thing is if you're in that sort of world you know it's quite damaging to growth in the long run 
because you know you or me thinking about setting up our new commercial enterprise might be a lot less likely to do that if we think the moment we are successful the king is going to take all of the upside and i just want to pursue this one last time because we won't talk too much about mafia states um there's too much too much else to talk about but of course the thing that that strikes struck me about all of this when you're describing it in in douglas north's very eloquent language or my language of kleptocracies and mafia style organizations extracting economic rent we, we like to think that that was the past and that there's been inexorable progress in a straight line, particularly since the Enlightenment, towards more civilized ways of divvying up the cake. But your talk about the elites extracting rents does have a lot of contemporary resonance, doesn't it? I mean, economic rent is still a thing. I mean, the thing is, in economic theory, you can, you can only get rid of economic rent entirely if you live in a world of perfect competition, i.e. a world where, you know, for every market, there is unlimited buyers and unlimited sellers and everyone has perfect information. And, you know, it, 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 it would be nice, but we're never, ever going to live in a world of perfect competition. And as long as you don't live in a world of perfect competition, economic rents will exist. And economic rents can at times be turned into political power to safeguard your economic rents. Um, and you know, so yeah, it's it, it's still there. I mean, I think it's less endemic to how society is run than it was 400 years ago. In but 50 in, years in, ago, it's an interesting question, isn't it? So I mean, you, I mean, it's like you want to fast forwarding from sort of the Neolithic age to the contemporary. You know, there's a very interesting argument, isn't there, talking particularly about the British economy and to an extent um, Ireland as well about you know to what extent was to what extent were the really strong returns we saw in the financial sector in the 1990s and the 2000s genuine value creation? And to what extent was this the extraction of an economic rent from the rest of the economy? You know, I don't think it was all one or the other, but there, there was certainly some rent-seeking behaviour going on, both in Britain and Ireland and in other financial sectors at that point. Duncan, um, if I may change the tack slightly, you describe um, the UK as Portugal, but with Singapore in the southeast corner. And, I, get, and you, I get into trouble for that, but I stand by it. This yes, indeed. No, it's, it's, it's an interesting thesis, but you, you talk about, you know, you trace the aftermath of the Black Death and the Industrial Revolution and the impact it had. And by 1870, Britain's economic hegemony was absolutely incredible, you know, accounting for 40% of global manufactured exports. And if you compare that to China's 13% of global manufactured exports at the moment. It just shows how all-powerful um, Britain was as a global economic power. Um, and now you describe it, as I say, as Portugal with Singapore in the southeast. What happened? What, what happened <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, I, okay, so <laughs> I think there are two... There's, there's two ways to think about this, I think. You, so if you start at the first principles, that Britain was the first country to undergo an industrial revolution. So in the first half of the 19th century, up to the end of the 19th century, Britain just has much higher income per head, GDP per capita, than anywhere else on the world for most of that time. Unless you think there is something special about either the British people or the island of Britain, then that lead was never going to last forever. So, you know, people were always going to catch up. And, you know, the United States and Germany caught up first, then the rest of Europe. And now we're seeing, you know, East Asian GDP per head catching up. So to some extent, you know, by going first, Britain had a lead. Britain was able to exercise that lead for many decades in the 19th century, but it was always inevitable that that lead would vanish. You know, the long history of Britain is the history of relative economic decline. But 
you know, that, that, that lead was lost in fits and starts. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned about the 1870 stats there. I, I, I got utterly fascinated by Britain in the late 19th century when I was writing the book. You know, it's not just that Britain is this, this is a hugely globalized world in the late 19th century, you know, as globalized as it was in the early 1980s. Lots of goods crossing borders, lots of capital crossing borders, lots of people crossing borders. It's a high age of Victorian, Edwardian globalization. And Britain sits at the center of that globalization, a very, very open economy at the center of the world economy. You know, it's playing the role that China does as a manufacturing powerhouse in this epoch of globalization. It's playing the role that the United States does in this era of globalization as a financial center. And it's playing the role of Saudi Arabia as the world's largest exporter of energy, Um, second largest producer of coal, but the largest exporter. This phenomenally powerful country. And the decisive break really comes I think, in the First World War. In the space of just four years, the entire basis of this economic model is challenged. You know, the country is transformed from being an international creditor to being an international debtor. Government debt to GDP jumps up from 30% to 130. All of these sort of staple industries, shipbuilding, textiles, coal, all lose a lot of market share and the economy is twisted out of shape by the demands of fighting a total war. And, you know, I think sort of the, the economic history of Britain in the 1920s until the 1930s is really this long, painful hangover from the First World War, which is this hugely decisive moment for the economy. The interaction of politics and economics is a key theme throughout the whole 200 years. And as I said in my introduction, you say that a few prime ministers like Peel, Gladstone, Attlee and Thatcher have shaped the economy rather than being shaped by the economy. Do you see that as a good thing or a bad thing? Are are you very, very critical of, well, I think you are very critical of the role that politics has played And um, I guess later on, we might get to talk a little bit about contemporary politics and Boris Johnson, for example. But uh, give us your perspective on the role and impact of politics. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, another another sort of key argument of the book is that political economy matters. That trying to understand over the medium term and especially over the longer term how the economy is developed without looking at politics and society is just crazy that you know the the economy is not this thing that happens in a separate sort of hermetically sealed bubble from what's happening in politics and society and similarly trying to understand politics over the medium term without looking at what's happening in the economy you will go wrong so it's about the trade-off between the two over time i mean the book you know ended up being called muddling through um because i think that's sort of been the default setting of british politics and british economic policy for most of the last two centuries so you know either things are going quite well in the 19th century why would we want to change or then this long period at the start of the 20th century of well things were going well in the 19th century maybe we can go back to that hands-off model even though it doesn't work anymore and then into um you know the the long post-war decline um and often a, a failure to grasp long-term challenges because you know political cycles are shorter than longer-term economic cycles and yeah i mean i end up saying thatcher attlee lloyd george gladstone peel about five prime ministers who have done much more to shape the economy than been shaped by it now each one of those was a very powerful political actor very skilled political actor and each one took power 
you know, in a historically contingent moment and were able to affect the changes they did. Most British prime ministers don't do that. Most British prime ministers and chancellors you know, try and manage the business cycle, usually end up getting blown off course by it. One of the things that always seems to blow them off, there are lots of different factors that the wind blows in all sorts of different ways, blowing them off course. But one of the things that ripples throughout the book is a very dry and, dare I say, quite dull subject that people automatically, their eyes glaze over. But it's one of those things that, from an economic historian's point of view, is so important, and it comes out in so many different ways in your book, is the role that debt servicing has played in British politics. And that, of course, potentially going forward from here has has lots of potential to to still exert an influence. But the management of the national debt just recurs throughout all of economic history, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, so in Britain, you know, Britain in eighteen fifteen, after the Battle of Waterloo, is this enormously indebted nation. Um, and you know, Victorians, you know, Victorian Britain doesn't have a fiscal policy as we would understand it. You know, it's not something you're using to manage the the business cycle or anything like that. You know, the but Victorian fiscal policy is really just about servicing and paying down the national debt. And that, I mean, that that is what chancellors do. That is the job of chancellors throughout most of the nineteenth century. It leaves to Britain. Britain has a very the British state has a very very small footprint, particularly outside of military and naval spending. Yeah. And the only debt. reason why that debt existed was because of prior wars, of course. Prior wars, yes, the mm. wars against Napoleon, the American War of Independence. Uh, these were expensive wars. Um, but it, after it wasn't the, about giving money to the poor. No, 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 not at all. That's yeah, it's a much later 20th century thing. But then in the 1920s is when it's particularly toxic. Because, you know, in the space of just four years, you get this huge jump in government debt in the First World War. And the fascinating thing is, in the first few years of the First World War, you know, the approach is really business as usual. And the government attempts to fund this debt, you know, by offering quite enticing interest rates for the time. So that, you know, the first big war bonds are with coupons of 5% compared to a pre-war lending of under three. So you end up with a huge jump in debt, debt which is much more expensive, and also debt which has a very different term structure to what went before. So, you know, before the First World War, most British government borrowing took the form of consoles, you know, literally perpetual securities, whereas you move to issuing 10-year bonds, which then all have to be refinanced in the 1920s. And so in the 1920s in Britain, you get horrific numbers in terms of debt service costs, forgetting capital, debt service costs alone, taking up 20 or 30% of annual tax revenues, which creates, a, as you can imagine, a big political problem for the government because you know, the tax level effectively doubles. But rather than this tax revenue being spent on services, it's being spent on debt interest. So if you're sort of median British voter in the 1920s, what the government is saying is, I'm going to double the amount of tax I'm taking from you. I'm not going to give you any more services. And in fact, that money I'm taking from you in tax, I'm going to give to some bondholders. And that's, it, it, it's not a nice political situation to find yourself in. So, that, and they, of course, you talk about the, that period after the First World War, where the coupon for our non-financial listeners, that's the rate of interest that the government has to pay on its borrowings, so-called because little bits of paper coupons had to be clipped off the side of the documents. After the Second World War, it was very different, you say. And we went in for something that we today, looking backwards, call financial repression. We actually had negative real interest rates for quite a period of time. And again, looking forward from today, I wonder whether that has lessons for 
what lies in our future. Um, certainly, we have a form of financial repression right now, particularly in the United States. Yeah, I, mean, I, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, if you think about the crisis advanced economies have been through in the last 18 months, two years, in fiscal terms, the only thing you can compare it to really is the two world wars of the 20th century. You know, it's sort of the kind of deficits that certainly Britain has never seen in peacetime before, really big jump in government debt as a share of um, the economy up to about 100%. Similar sort of jumps you got in the two world wars. And yeah, the approaches after those two world wars to managing the debt was very different. We spoke about the 1920s, attempted to use market mechanisms, an awful lot of government revenue got swallowed up with the debt service payments. Um, British government sort of lurched from fiscal crisis to fiscal crisis. After the Second World War, it was a very different approach. Monetary policy, the raising and lowering of interest rates, was not really to do with inflation. It was about helping the government manage its debt. And these policies were used around the advanced world. You know, They became known as financial repression. The way that worked is relied on three things, really. The central bank keeps interest rates very low, ideally below the rate of inflation. So the real interest rate is negative. You've got fairly closed capital markets. So domestic savers can't just put their money wherever they want. It's got to be, you know, British savers in most cases have to invest in Britain. So you've got this trapped pool of savings. And then you use sort of prudential regulation and financial regulation to push pension funds, insurance companies, banks, all of these other pools of assets into buying government debt, which is loss making in real terms. And, you know, slowly but surely, over the course of decades, the value of your debt is eroded away by inflation. So you look at Britain, you know, um, debt to GDP after the Second World War is above 200%. It gets down to about um, in the region of 40% by 1970. But during those 25 years, you know, the debt isn't reduced by Britain spending 25 years running big surpluses, taxing more than it spends. Most of the time, Britain's running a deficit. But the hard work of debt reduction is being done by inflation and low interest rates. So you're essentially passing on the costs of your previous borrowing to the holders of assets, to the financial sector. And may I add, inflation and real economic growth as well. Yeah, yes. That, that's important because yes. you, you trace out that... Um, in the, po- in, in the period following the Industrial Revolution and the very high debts that occasionally occurred back in the 19th century, they were quickly eroded by economic growth, yeah. whether yeah. both real and nominal. And you contrasted that in the book with the 1920s when yeah. uh, there wasn't any growth or inflation to help that very high de- indebtedness coming out of the First yeah. World War. And then you contrast that again with coming out of the Second World War, which again, yeah. We look today and trying to learn that and this goes back to our discussion right at the very start of this podcast about learning the lessons, the value of studying economic history mm. is that a lot of this sounds terribly familiar, doesn't it? It does. It does. I mean, I, I, it, it's sort of a depressing theme of the book that you realize that very little, certainly in the British public policy debate, is ever that new. So, you know, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's almost the law that every three that or four years... Question I was going to ask you, my very last question I was going to ask you, is there anything new ever? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, to be fair, um, you know, there's what I was going to say was, you know, it seems every five or six years, someone in Britain says, German technical education and vocational education is quite good. We should look at that. And that's been happening since at least the 1870s. The debate on, are the banks too big to fail? Are the banks supporting industry well? very, very old. Is Britain too open or too closed? 
very, very old. I think what is new, actually, to be fair, is, and we've managed to make it half an hour without using the B word, but Brexit, in that, you know, Britain has often debated the balance between supposed, supposed sovereignty and economic openness. But, you know, the process of de-integrating yourself from such a well-integrated single market that is new. Britain's Britain's not had to do that before. We're still feeling our way through that one. But, you know, it's it's not a very positive note, but I think that's probably the newest thing in British economic history. Skipping forward a bit, you talk about the 2020s. Well, you you talk about, you describe the 2010s as being a decade of probably abject failure. And then the 2020s as probably being the most significant decade uh, the British economy and society have faced with issues like Brexit and the disentangling from an integrated market where you've been since 1973, demographic change, net zero, that all of these issues are just so important. And I'd like you to just talk about that uh, and also sort of extrapolate it forward. Do you believe the UK political system is actually capable of addressing those issues and is there any possibility we may be entering into a new paradigm? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, even if the pandemic hadn't happened, the 2020s were going to be an important time for the British economy. So, you know, Brexit is this huge change. It would be a core part of sort of, you know, the, the institutional architecture of the British economy for, for decades. It's been a huge driver of our productivity since at least the mid-1980s in terms of firms having access to a wider market and domestic firms being subject to more competition from imports. So that, that going away, that, 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 is, that is huge. And, you know, Britain has to make the choice of how close do you cling to European regulatory standards versus going off and pursuing trade deals elsewhere. These, these are big consequential choices. Net zero, huge transition. You know, Britain and Britain wants to decarbonize by 2050. All of the numbers from the Climate Change Committee, from the Office of Budget Responsibility, the bodies that assess this, all say if you want to decarbonize by 2050, then that requires an awful lot of spending in the 2020s. Uh, you know, lots of the expensive legwork has to be done in this decade, demographic change of Britain getting older, and then you add the pandemic on top, which has left us with higher government debt than we expected, and has also not radically transformed, but having accelerated some pre-existing trends. So, you know, the retail sales done online have jumped from about 20% of sales to 30% of sales, and it looks like they're staying there, even as the shops have reopened. You know, that's an acceleration. You know, people working from home more often, maybe a bit of a change of sort of the economic geography of some cities. These are all just accelerations of, of trends. So yes, the 2020s are not the kind of decade you want to muddle through. Um, but I fear, I fear that we will. And I think the most interesting development of the 2010s, I think that it's on, going back to that political economy point, you know, you look at the last 200 years of British political economy, and you can say much of politics is ultimately about distributional fights between different interest groups, you know, originally between sort of landholders versus the new owners of capital, the new commercial industrial middle class, and then the owners of capital versus the organized working class, and then, you know, capital versus labor and all of these sort of things. The really interesting and I think new interest group, certainly in British politics in the last 10, 15 years, is a huge cohort of either retired or about to retire 
older individuals who tend to have, in most cases, um, reasonably secure defined benefit pension income, tend to own their own property. And there are lots of them because we're an aging society and their political power is magnified because they actually vote. Their turnout rates are a lot higher than younger people. And what's fascinating about these people as an economic interest group is that they're almost a post-economic interest group. They've got secure income, secure assets. Um, you know, what the, sort of the day-to-day gyrations of the business cycle, they're to an extent insulated from. And I think the big question is going to be, how do you make a political system work when you've got a substantial voting block for whom these old bread and butter issues of employment, unemployment, growth matter less? And that's going to be particularly challenging, actually, with net zero and the climate change transition, because you're asking a load of people to pay an awful lot more tax or to collectively borrow a lot more in the 2020s for stuff which you're not going to see the benefits of until the 2040s or the 2050s. And, you know, being being really harsh about it, some of them are going to be dead. Um, and that, that, that's quite a hard political economy problem to solve. And I, I don't, you know, it, it, it's easier writing about the past than speculating about the future. And I'm not sure I've quite got a solution to that. Duncan, to what extent, sorry, this is changing the subject somewhat, to what, looking back throughout your study of economic and political history, you, you likely touch on the history of the economics profession itself. And you mentioned some key players, Keynes, most obviously, Friedman gets um, an honourable mention, Robert Lucas is mentioned once or twice, Bill Phillips is mentioned, but it, this is not a book about the history of economic thought. But how much do you think the economics profession is responsible for some of this very poor policy making? Because one of the constant themes of the book, with honourable exceptions, is the very poor policy set of policy choices that have been made by British politicians. And that could be because they, they didn't follow the good advice they were getting from the profession. But how much do you think it's the fault of the profession itself? That's a very good question. Um... Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to answer that in two different ways. I'm going to say firstly that, you know, going back to the thing we were talking about at the very beginning and, you know, the old Keynes point on, you know, Keynes saying it's not vested interests you should care about its ideas. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, vested interests really matter. And I think what's interesting is how vested interests use ideas. So, you know, Keynes in the 1930s, you know, comes out with the general theory, invents modern macroeconomics. But the only reason that is really put into practice in Britain is because you get a political change, you get a majority Labour government, you know, things have, you know, the dice have fallen in a certain way that gives the Attlee government the chance to reorganise how the economy works. And Keynes has provided sort of the intellectual framework and toolkit to show how to do that. Similarly, you know, Friedman is writing in the, from, from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, but it's he's provided a toolkit and a framework, but it's not until Margaret Thatcher wins an election in 1979 with a different governing coalition that that toolkit is picked up and put into place. I think that's it's all the interrelationship between the two. In terms of, you know, I get into this a bit towards the end of the book. Um, there's a great debate, I think, to be had on this on, um, you know, why was inflation, which was a thing bedeviling British policymakers from at least the mid 60s until the mid 80s, why was it so much tamer in the 1990s and 2000s until the crash in 2007-8? And, you know, there's two theories there, isn't there? There's the theory that central bankers tend to be most keen on, which is that 
better policy was the answer. We were put in charge of it. We look through the business cycle. We're more credible. And you know, I'm, I'm sure it is true that monetary policy was in general better in the 90s and 2000s than it had been in the 1970s or the 1980s or the 1960s. But there's also you know, a structural transformation of the economy at the same time, whether that's rebirth of globalization, China entering the world economy, breaking of labor power and trade union power. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that economists can claim all of the credit for the more benign inflation of the 90s and 2000s, reassuring as it would be if they were responsible. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And you no doubt, I'm sorry to be a little bit geeky about this, the very old paper now by Sargent and Wallace in some unpleasant monetarist arithmetic has some very, again, that's a bit of economic history, um, economic theory history, which is that it, 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 that was all about um, the interaction between fiscal and monetary policy. And it may well be the case that, that monetary dominance that we've had in policy for the last number of decades um, was helped by the, by all of those factors that you mentioned, particularly China, but also that fiscal policy became a residual, um, which it most definitely is not today. The, one of the implications of that, what I would call classic paper, is that we may be astonished by the extent to which should contemporary inflation turn out to be not temporary in the way that central banks are telling us it is, that then when they raise interest rates to stop it, unless the fiscal side of the equation plays ball, um, they may be surprised by how much they don't manage to control inflation with interest rate rises. So there's all, so the history of economic thought and the way that it's gone, um, as you can probably tell, um, interests me a lot. But I've got um, one other question, and, and I'm conscious of time, but this is, this is one theme that, again, it recurs throughout the book, but you pick it up particularly in the 1960s. And I, I mention this because, yet again, it has contemporary resonance, is that you talk about the, this, the many different attempts made at regional development in the UK, the various ways in which uh, the planning rules were tweaked or changed radically, that there was selective employment tax to try and encourage exporters versus non-exporters, uh, the way in which tax breaks were given to the regions, and more generally, the way in which people tried, politicians tried to develop the not basically the non-Southeast um, relative to the Southeast. And does that sound horribly familiar to you in the context of something called levelling up? It does, it does. And, you know, as working as a journalist, it's fascinating that since... December, it's suddenly, it must have been January, January 2020, suddenly you couldn't pick up the phone to the Treasury about any topic without them putting the words levelling up in the answer. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. This was the only thing the government wanted to talk about. Then the pandemic happened and we had 14, 15 months of them talking about it less. And now we're back on levelling up. And levelling up is a is a phrase. It's an aspiration. We don't quite know what it means it's yet. It's a government department. It's a government department now. Yes, yes. It's replaced local government, which is telling in of itself. Um but yes, you know, if leveling up is about trying to narrow economic differentials around the UK, it's not new. I mean, that dates to you know at least the 1930s and special area assistance schemes, huge amount of policy in the 60s and 70s, enterprise zones in the 1980s, and the regional development agencies under Blair and Brown. Um, what I find fascinating is sort of you know London has always been the richest part of the UK. There's a there's a there's a very brief moment in the early 1950s, when the West Midlands with the motor industry briefly overtakes the Southeast, but very, very brief. The Southeast of London has always been the richest part of the UK, but those gaps have varied over time. And we've seen a real widening of those gaps since the mid 1980s, which is mainly 
sort of a sector story in that the sectors of the British economy, which have done particularly well, have been concentrated in London and the southeast. The bits that have struggled more have been um, more in the north, Scotland, Midlands, uh, Wales, etc. So, you know, it's a sector story. But I, I, I do find it fascinating when the government thinks it's just, you know, sort of discovered levelling up. Now, it does take us back, though, to political economy mattering, because this suddenly appears in the government's lexicon as the only thing they want to talk about just after the 2019 election. And what was interesting about the 2019 election was strong conservative majority on the back of four dozen or so seats won from Labour in the North and the Midlands. And call me cynical, but when you've got a majority based on a new political coalition of 40 or 50 seats you've not previously held before in the North and the Midlands, when you then decide the central aim of your government is helping the North and the Midlands, well, you know, the timing is at least convenient, shall we put it. From, from an Irish perspective, Duncan, uh, the Sterling relationship has always been very, very important to us. Uh, and I, I think back on when um, Ireland joined the European Monetary System in 79, when Britain joined the ERM, and then with the creation of the single European currency. So whether we're in a currency union or not with Sterling, it has always created serious difficulties for us. And you, you talk a lot about exchange rate policy throughout the book, particularly the role of the gold standard, uh, Bretton Woods and so on. So what do you, how, how do you categorize 200 years of British exchange rate policy? And I guess more importantly, what do you think exchange rate policy for sterling should be into the future? Yeah, I mean, you know, Britain's, you know, you know, economists talk about the the impossible trilemma that you can only ever have two or three things. Those three things being open capital markets, a fixed exchange rate, or um, domestic control of monetary policy. And over the years, Britain has had a go at all three points. So we've had times on the gold standard in which we had big open flowing capital markets, um, fixed the value of sterling, but gave up control of interest rates. We've had the Bretton Wood period when we had fixed sterling, domestic control of interest rates, but closed capital markets. And, you know, since 1992 and the ejection from the ERM, we've been at the other point in that we've got domestic control of monetary policy. We've got very open capital markets, but we let sterling float. I mean, I find it fascinating when you look back at sort of the balance of payments and sterling in Britain, particularly in the 20th century, that, you know, governments used to fall on this. Um, governments used to fall because of bad balance of payments and devalued sterling. And now, you know, it's just an item in the news after the latest on the FTSE 100. And just sort of how quickly it's gone from being sort of a core aim of policy to just a residual that, you know, you set your domestic policy and sterling adjusts to find a level. I mean, it was very useful for Britain in 2008, 2009, 2010, when we had a very large devaluation after the financial crisis um, did help the economy recover a bit. We obviously had another large devaluation after the Brexit vote in 2016. Now, that one seems to have been a lot less helpful in that it doesn't appear to have boosted exports. It appears to have mainly fed through into higher inflation and contributing to a squeeze on wages. I mean, you know, in terms of the grand question of where should we be on the trilemma, I think we probably are at the right point. That, you know, I think domestic control of interest rates is the most important thing you want to control. And then given a choice between fixing sterling or open capital markets, I lean towards open capital markets purely because 
the British experience of fixing sterling over the last 200 years is we generally fix it at too high a point. And then politicians don't want to admit they're fixed at a too high a point because it all gets tied up in sort of political machismo and is seen as a defeat. So you end up with inappropriate exchange rates. Um, but yeah, but I, I mean, the fascinating thing for me is the move from this being central to how politicians thought about the economy to it being just, you know, a very low item on the news. Absolutely. Um, I'm conscious of time, Jim. We've taken a lot of Duncans already. So um, I don't know whether you've got any more questions, but I'm just going to round off my remarks. First of all, by thanking Duncan very much for this, for the book. I learned a lot. I reminded myself of a lot of stuff that I should have known, or at least I shouldn't have forgotten. Uh, One of the most important lessons for me from the book was something I learned um, in work that I used to do for the Welsh Assembly. Uh, a number of years ago, which was in the context of regional development. And a lot of politicians in Wales used to ask me, given my Irish connections, um, how did Ireland do its own development story? And why can't we just recreate what the Irish did? And one of the lessons of the book, I think, Duncan, correct me if I'm wrong, is that even if you can identify all those initial conditions, and I'm thinking here particularly about the Industrial Revolution, about why it was Britain and when it started, when it did, is that even if you could recreate a whole set of initial economic conditions that seem to have led to a particular outcome. What worked once doesn't necessarily work twice, even if even if you replicate it exactly. And that, in a way, speaks to the mystery of economic growth from a macro context um, and productivity growth. As a profession, we still find many aspects of these things mysterious and difficult to explain. The second thing I took from it, which is something that all economists learn very young, and I think tend to forget is is incentives matter and Charlie Munger who is um, Warren Buffett's sidekick um, less well known than Warren Buffett is 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 even better than than Buffett for for aphorisms and sayings he says uh, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome and I, and I think that's something I take from your book as well so that's all from me I just wanted to say again a big thank you I loved the book it's very very readable and I would strongly encourage any of our listeners to take a look. Jim. Uh, yeah, Duncan, on, on behalf of Chris and myself, I'd like to thank you very much for your time today. Um, I certainly learned a lot from the book that I didn't know. And in understanding, I guess, the context for Ireland over the years, this is really fascinating. I would recommend it to any general reader, any economics reader, anybody really interested in the history of Britain. It's fascinating. So the book is called 200 Years of Muddling Through by Duncan Weldon. So, Duncan, thank you very much for uh, giving us your time today and the very best of luck in the future. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.